This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, December 2nd. I'm Doug Blair. And I'm Kate Trinko. Yesterday, the Supreme Court heard a pivotal case that could result in Roe v. Wade being overturned. Virginia Allen chats with lawyer Janice Harrell, who is the director of Alliance Defending Freedom's Center for Life. They chat about the highlights from the oral arguments yesterday in the Dobbs First Jackson Women's Health Organization case. But before we get to that conversation, let's hit the top news stories of the day. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the landmark abortion case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. In a move signaling where the verdict is likely to fall, Justices Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, and John Roberts all expressed openness to either overturning or weakening abortion access given under Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Justices Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan signaled that they were opposed. Wednesday's arguments began with Mississippi Solicitor General and former clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas, Scott Stewart. Stewart argued that the right to an abortion is not written explicitly in the Constitution and that therefore did not constitute an actual right. He also argued that abortion is an issue better regulated in state legislatures and not in the Supreme Court. Stewart was followed by litigation director at the Center for Reproductive Rights, Julie Rickleman. Rickleman's organization represents the Jackson Women's Health Organization. Rickleman argued that Roe v. Wade was essential for gender equality. In her brief to the court, Rickleman wrote, Two generations, spanning almost five decades, have come to depend on the availability of legal abortion, and the right to make this decision has been further cemented as critical to gender equality. Rickleman also argued that the feasibility of reasonable possibility standard would be unworkable, and that without viability lines for abortion, states would ban the procedure earlier in the pregnancy. Rickleman was followed by U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Proliger, a former clerk to Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Elena Kagan. In her arguments, Proliger said, Nearly half of the states already have, or are expected to enact, bans on abortion at all stages of pregnancy, many without exceptions for rape or incest. Women who are unable to travel hundreds of miles to gain access to legal abortion will be required to continue with their pregnancies and give birth with profound effects on their bodies, their health, and the course of their lives. It is unlikely a verdict will come down in the case until near the end of the current Supreme Court term. The House Freedom Caucus, a group of conservative House lawmakers, is urging Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to refuse to pass a continuing resolution to keep the government open and funded if that continuing resolution funds President Biden's vaccine mandate. In a letter to McConnell, House Freedom Caucus members write, As you know, the current government funding mechanism expires on Friday night. Thus, the Senate Republican Conference enjoys important leverage against those mandates. We therefore write to request that you use all procedural tools at your disposal to deny timely passage of the continuing resolution unless it prohibits funding in all respects, for the vaccine mandates and enforcement. However, McConnell said Tuesday, we won't shut down. I think we'll get there and certainly nobody should be concerned about a government shutdown. CNN's Chris Cuomo expressed embarrassment on his Sirius XM radio show following his Tuesday indefinite suspension from CNN in light of revelations surrounding efforts he took to protect his brother, former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, from sexual harassment allegations. 
On his Wednesday radio show, Cuomo said, It hurts to even say it. It's embarrassing, but I understand it. And I understand why some people feel the way that they do about what I did. I've apologized in the past, and I mean it. Cuomo has been accused of inappropriately using his journalistic connections to assist his brother. Per The Hill, documents released by the New York Attorney General's office highlighted one incident where a top aide to former Governor Andrew Cuomo asked Chris Cuomo to check with his sources in the media surrounding additional allegations against the governor, to which Chris Cuomo agreed. Another document indicated that Chris Cuomo texted the same aide he had a lead on the wedding girl, referencing an allegation the former governor inappropriately touched a woman at a wedding. In a statement announcing Cuomo's suspension from the network, CNN wrote, These documents point to a greater level of involvement in his brother's efforts than we previously knew. As a result, we have suspended Chris indefinitely, pending further evaluation. Next up, we'll have Virginia Allen's interview with an Alliance Defending Freedom lawyer about the oral arguments in the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case. Conservative women, conservative feminists, it's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. I am so pleased to be joined by the director of the Center for Life and Alliance Defending Freedom, Denise Harrell. Denise, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, my pleasure, Virginia. Thanks for having me on. Well, Denise, it has been a wild week in Washington, D.C. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments for a case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. The case really stems from a Mississippi law, which was passed in 2018, and it banned abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. What exactly was the big question that the justices were considering in this case, Denise? So there were two big questions, basically. Um, So the bottom line really is whether to overturn Roe v. Wade. And that is huge. Uh, This is the first and best opportunity that the nation has seen to do that. And that was squarely at issue in all the discussions today. Um, Beyond that... The questions the courts were, the court was grappling with was of this viability standard. So um, just a little bit of legal background, Roe versus Wade, and then the case interpreting it, um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, set up essentially a a viability rule, which is that states um, cannot protect unborn children before the point of viability. Now, in Roe versus Wade, 1973, that was a 24 to 28-week range. By the time of Casey, it was 23 to 24. Now we see babies surviving at 21 or 22, so it's a moving target, um, certainly not a constitutional basis. And so one of the biggest questions the justices were asking is, uh, where does this come from? Uh, It's not in the Constitution. What is the legal basis for it? And you know, it, it seems arbitrary because a baby is just, you know, what's the difference between 15 and 21 weeks, for example. And what was very interesting was that the, uh, 
abortion clinic advocate did not have an explanation or a justification, um, simply said that it's a principled line and we followed it for 50 years and so we should stick with it. Um, and I think it was a very unsatisfying answer. Hmm. So they were really essentially just saying, well, this is the precedent, so we should continue with the precedent instead of providing uh, a, a, an additional argument. That's right. And that's a problem for a couple of reasons. One is that the Supreme Court in its cases has repeatedly affirmed that states do have an important interest in protecting what they've called vulnerable and innocent life from the moment of conception. So the Supreme Court has actually said in multiple cases that states have important interests in protecting maternal health and unborn life from the outset of pregnancy. That is and has always been a bit of a conflict with Roe and Casey's holdings. So the other piece of the puzzle today was this question of stare decisis, which is the Latin term for whether to just follow the precedent. And as several justices pointed out and the Mississippi Solicitor General pointed out, the Supreme Court, when it has made an erroneous decision, fixes that decision. Um, Brown versus Board of Education, um, overruling Plessy v. Ferguson. There are, there are fantastic examples of where the Supreme Court was wrong and the best thing to do is to correct it as soon as possible so that the Constitution is put back in its proper place in America. Well, and that was, like you say, that was the central argument of Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stort. He he made the case that the right to abortion, it's not explicitly written in the Constitution. How strong did you think his argument was, the argument of the Solicitor General? And do you think it was strong enough that we could see Roe v. Wade overturned? It was so strong, in fact, that the other side did not even dispute it. I, I did not hear anyone, including a liberal justice or the U.S. Solicitor General or the abortion clinic's attorney, attempt to argue that there is a right in the Constitution that secures abortion. It, all they said was, we've been relying on this for almost 50 years, and, you know, women need it for equal participation in society. No one pointed to a place in the Constitution where this right to abortion came from. So I think that was very compelling. The other part of Mississippi's argument that was impactful was that there's no middle ground that the court can take without causing all kinds of new problems. So basically, the options are <laughs> overturn Roe completely or continue to stay in this horrible mess that we've seen created where not only have 60 million lives been lost to abortion, but our nation has been locked in this debate and this deadlock where the voters and the American people can't enact their policy preferences to show a support for life simply because of a decision made in 1973 by seven of the nine men on the court at that time. And so I think there's a it's teed up to be a very clean decision between overturn Roe or don't. Hmm. Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Thomas and Alito, all more conservative justices on the bench, they expressed openness to either overturning or weakening abortion access under Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Were there any specific questions or comments that the conservative 
justices raised that surprised you or were of particular interest to you? There were several. I think one of the interesting thing that Justice Kavanaugh pointed out in several of his questions, the, the subtext was, wouldn't it be better for the courts to just get out of the business of abortion policy? If we overturn Roe, all it will do is say that the Constitution is neutral on abortion. And if the Constitution is silent on abortion, then each state and the voters of each state can do what they want. And it won't be a matter of, you know, tainting the judiciary by constantly putting judges at the center of what should be a political legislative policy debate. And I thought that was very encouraging because I think that is a clean solution. And I think it's the constitutionally correct solution because the Constitution doesn't say anything or even imply anything about abortion. Um, So I thought that was a very good one. Another thing that was interesting was that uh, Chief Justice Roberts in particular seized on some of the facts about international law on abortion. And the fact is that US, the U.S. is an extreme outlier in abortion policy. In fact, we're one of only six nations in the entire world that allows abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy. And so in, in pushing back against this idea that viability is the proper standard, Chief Justice Roberts pointed out that the international human rights consensus is that um, that's an appalling policy. I think it's more than 90% of countries limit abortions at 15 weeks. And so Mississippi is attempting to be in line with with what is a very common sense recognition that, you know, life is a fundamental human right. Well, in Chief Justice Roberts, he does tend to be a little bit more of a of a swing vote on the court. Mm-hmm. Given those comments and remarks he made, do you have a sense of how we might see him vote on this? Chief Justice Roberts invited the abortion clinic advocates on several occasions to attempt to offer a middle ground. And in fact, he did that of, of both sides, I would say, to offer some sort of more moderate solution and the abortion clinic really doubled down and said, no, there's no middle ground. Roe must stay. That's what we've been relying on. That's what we've been applying. And that's the only way to go. And viability, you know, the court said in Casey that viability makes sense. So it still makes sense because nothing's changed. Um, and that was kind of the extent of the argument. Hmm. So I think, I think it almost would have been better for the other side if they wanted to offer some sort of more more moderate solution. Uh, and so it's going to be, it would be up to Chief Justice Roberts to try to craft something that neither of the sides was was arguing and really that, again, doesn't have a basis in the Constitution. Hmm. And what about from the three uh, more liberal justices on the bench? Were there any questions or comments that they made that you were particularly fascinated by? Their questions were very heavily focused on stare decisis. Um, and, and that's uh, the idea of precedence again, right? That's the idea yeah. of precedent. Thank you. And, and really trying to push on the idea of reliance. In fact, Justice Kagan said something that was interesting that almost sounded like a concession, I think, which is that she said nothing has changed since Roe and Casey that would undermine you know, our reliance on them. And I think that's just 
completely untrue based on facts of science, medical technology, um, just society. So thinking about, for example, women now are the majority in medical school and law school. Um, women are able to work remotely, get college degrees remotely. Single moms have all sorts of fantastic support from everything from pregnancy center networks to churches to um, great policies, different you know government policies that help support moms um, raising their children. And so between that and the fact that contraception is basically f widely available almost or completely free and almost 100% effective, um, that there's not that same reason why women might ha expect all of these unplanned pregnancies. Um, in addition, we know so much more about the unborn child. And this, I think, is the biggest thing that's changed since Roe and Casey that should just stop us in our tracks. A 15-week-old um, child in the womb can hiccup, has had a heartbeat for weeks, can taste what her mom eats, can move around and kick. She has eyes and eyelids. She's opening and closing her fingers. And we see this on 4D and 3D ultrasounds now. If you look at an ultrasound from 1973, when Roe was decided, it, it looks like a weather radar or an ink blot test or something. Uh, we do fetal surgery now and are saving the lives and, and the health of babies in the womb at the earliest age. We know about fetal pain and we've seen, we can see babies now react to stimulus and pain on ultrasounds. And so these are, we didn't have that window to the womb then, but we know it now and it's would be foolish and ignorant of us to disregard that clear picture of humanity that we have now. Hmm. So now what what is the process moving forward for the justices? What what does it look like now that they've heard the oral arguments from both sides? What is is their process in making their decision? And that's a great question. Let me give a caveat now, which is that from all of the takeaways we want to have from the oral argument, um, most of the decision making has not even begun. Hmm. This is a long process. A lot can change. A lot is in flux. So what will happen in this case is the justices will conference the case on Friday, meaning they will each have an opportunity to share with each other their vote and essentially the reasoning. At that point, the most senior justice in the majority will assign the majority opinion to a writer and the most senior justice in the, in the minority will assign the dissent. At that point, the opinion writing process begins. Um, justices who aren't writing the majority or the dissent also have the opportunity to write a concurring opinion. I suspect we will see several um, concurring and dissenting opinions probably in this case. And then um, eventually they, they begin to circulate their opinions to get the other justices to sign on. Um, they have conversations with their clerks. They go back to the briefing. They go perhaps back to the oral argument transcript. It's a long process. Normally, the most uh, high-profile difficult cases, and I would qualify this as one, is uh, they come out at the end of the term. So we would see a decision by the last weekday in June of 2022. It's possible it could come out earlier, but uh, they will not release the opinion until all of the dissent or dissents 
and concurrences are written and finalized. And so it's a it's a whole package deal and you have to wait on all the justices to get all of their thinking on paper and get all of the agreements and disagreements before we'll see um, an answer. So I would say likely June, um, could be surprised a little bit earlier, but it's probably going to take several months. Okay, wow. So as an attorney, given the fact that you know you watched the legal arguments today, how optimistic are you for the future of this case? What do you think the outcome is going to be? I know it's obviously we we can't know for sure how the justices will rule, but um, in in your legal professional opinion, what would be your best guess? Mm-hmm. And some of the justices are very good about not tipping their cards um, and almost even sort of doing some misdirection and asking you know de- devil's advocate type questions. So again, a lot can change in the thinking and the writing process after today. I think what was most encouraging to me was I didn't hear any real pushback or alarm bells from, I would say, at least four of the more conservative justices seemed um, to really be tracking with Mississippi's arguments. I think a couple of the justices, maybe more in the middle, were were feeling around for whether there was a middle path. Um, but on the whole, I suspect that the pro-life movement and all of Mississippi's supporters today feel that the arguments went very well they feel extremely encouraged. And I feel like the Supreme Court right now has a very clear, intellectually honest blueprint to overturn Roe versus Wade, restore the Constitution to its proper meaning and understanding, and return the issue of abortion back to the people of America so that we can enact our policy preferences um, you know, and a, a majority of Americans don't think that abortion should be permitted, you know, certainly not late term. So I think there's a very clear legal roadmap that can be done very cleanly. And I am hopeful that the, the court will do the courageous thing, which is to overturn precedent in this case and correct that error. Denise Harrell, Senior Counsel and Director of the Center for Life at Alliance Defending Freedom. Denise, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate uh, hearing your expertise on this. You bet. Great talking with you. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to The Daily Signal Podcast. You can find The Daily Signal Podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and please encourage others to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.